0: My name is JT Van Zant. I'm a fly fishing guide on the Gulf Coast of Texas. Being on the water has always been the secret to unlocking my soul. I just feel like I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing in this life. And that feeling inspires deep thought and conversations with my clients, who are all of varied backgrounds. I truly enjoy sharing perspective on the human experience with folks I take fishing. Drifting, a Yeti Presents podcast, was created with the goal of capturing those candid conversations with people who inspire me and sharing them with an audience that has the same sort of restlessness and curiosity that I do. I have found that the best way to provide wisdom and hope for future generations is to learn from the folks that have blazed the trail before us and have made tough decisions in the pursuit of living an extraordinary life. I hope you enjoy, and thanks for listening to Drifty. There is an old way of life that once was common in the frontier days that is all but gone in modern America. A tough but fulfilling life, a life outdoors, a life of bare necessity. Very few people alive today connect us to that past, the history of a frontier people and the real cowboys that settled the Wild West. One such person that holds that connection to our past is Wyman Menzer. Wyman, born in 1950, grew up the son of a ranch foreman on 27,000 acres in the Badlands of Texas. He grew up working hard and freely roaming the land. Wyman trapped and hunted his whole life and even sold skins to get through college. One day his professor at Texas Tech loaned him a camera to collect data in the field and something clicked. Wyman transitioned from shooting animals with a rifle and started shooting them with a the lens. His amazing images represent the beauty and wild places throughout the state of Texas and the animals that reside there. His work has earned him the official title of State Photographer of Texas. He is a highly sensitive and compassionate cowboy. He is strong and sharp and keen, and he is a historian. He connects us to the frontier people from which we all came. He has seen the last of what they saw, and he shares that with us and he preserves an old way of life, Wyman Menzer. Growing up, so, Wyman, I heard you mention on a little film you did with Yeti mm-hmm. that you were raised a cowboy. Yes, yeah. Can you tell us exactly what that means?
1: Yeah, well, my dad uh, my dad was the uh, foreman on a 27,000-acre ranch there in Knox County, and, um, and so we... I think he took that job on in 1952 when I was a year and a half old. And so that's all I knew, you know, growing up was, was on the ranch and we started working when we was old enough to ride. And he was, he's, uh, of the old breed, the old genre of people, he expected you to work. And, uh, and so uh, we would go and stay all day with the Cowboys and push cattle and, you know, brand. And, um, and it was it was a good experience in life. You know, it was a good it was something that taught you a good work ethic, you know, that, that nothing was free. You know, you had to put a little time into it. And uh and dad was hard driving. He like I say, he was uh, he was born in nineteen eighteen, January thirteenth, nineteen eighteen. And uh worked on the, the old ranches there all of his life. And um and so um in fact, he, he was he was such a hard driving guy. I mean, it, it, he didn't have any, he had no uh, hobbies. It was work, and so he thought it was a bit silly that I liked to hunt arrowheads. I liked to hunt coyotes. My brother and I, you know, hunted all the time. We got that from our grandfather on our mother's side, in the uh, the hunting aspect of it, of it all. And so uh, every spare moment we were, were not on horseback, we were we had a gun in our hands and was out out in the field. And um, and of course the ranch had a couple of of uh, big lakes on it for waterfowl, so we hunted everything: whitetail, waterfowl, quail, just uh, predators. Same caliber
0: at the time. <laughs> same
1: at the time, the same 42. caliber. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What and, were you
0: shooting as a boy?
1: Well, if I shoot high-powered rifles, I shot a two forty-three. <laughs> And I shot three barrels out on it, just completely shot them out, and then I then I switched over to two twenty two, two twenty swift, and kind of went from there. And I got various calibers now, but started out with a four ten at nine nine years of age, an old Stevens four ten that I still have today. And just a it, single shot, broken single belt. shot, break it open, yeah. just and still it's just as sound as it ever was. Oh, that's nice. And uh, and then I went to a. Single shot twelve gauge that had about three bulges in the barrel. It's an old I don't know where it came from uh and I had to use copper wire to keep it shut and just kick the fire out of you, but I used that and then and then uh, then i got got something a little better that was a pretty dangerous gun to be shooting
0: when you said your dad expects you to work like I got two boys, four and six, and I expect them to work too, but they don't right what well, right. What's that example, like, it's not fear, there's love in it, but how did you emulate your father, and, and what caused you to be in line? Like, well, he was, What was know, the method?
1: He was, he was uh, very respected by, by other older cowboys, older men in the region. Uh, I gravitated, as a young boy, I gravitated to older men and their stories, and, and the women also. Um, I would sit and listen to the old cowboys, old ranchers, and talk to them about the old days, what it was like, uh, uh, the philosophies of the people back when, you know, in the twenties and the teens. And, and to, to, uh, each one of them would, uh, would say, you know, your daddy is a hell of a horse, man. He knows horses and he, and in the 30s he rode rough horses on the mashed oak which is now the spike box ranch but he rode uh, the rough string out there and i remember one old gentleman Orrin driver i i uh, missed church my, my dad was a deacon the bad church and so when you miss church that was a big deal but i missed church one morning just listening to Orrin driver tell old stories about about the uh the turn of the century and my dad riding horses and he died one week later i'll never forget those the that that morning sitting at the foot of his uh, chair his rocking chair and listening to him talk hmm. and but you know, i had a great respect for my dad uh, i thought he worked too much you know because i was kind of one of these guys that kind of like to have a little time off
0: like by the time you were a young teenager or so
1: absolutely yeah. you know i even in college you know i'd come in on weekends and work cattle uh, and hunt coyotes said, I didn't I didn't want to stay in Lubbock I had an old 1966 Bronco Roadster U13 they only made 5,000 of them I didn't know it at the time but it was a historical actually it's a part of forward history and uh, I'd load that thing up and head home on Friday and grab my rifle and hunt till dark Saturday morning get up work cattle and then hunt Saturday night Sunday morning and drive home, drive back to Lubbock on Sunday afternoon. Uh, that was when
0: you were at school
1: at Tech, yes, okay. Texas Tech,
0: yeah. And did you go to uh, undergraduate there, or did you go to Sol Ross? Where...
1: No, no, I, I went my full full five year stint at Tech. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good.
0: <laughs> Is the cabin close to there? Uh, my your what? hunting cabin? Oh, that? the dugout. Yeah, uh,
1: it's about uh, fifty miles, fifty miles off the Cap Rock. Yeah, it's about it's. Uh, about almost halfway between benjamin and and lubbock
0: okay mm-hmm. what is that drive uh
1: it's 125 miles from benjamin to lubbock all so right it wasn't that bad but it was like 55 miles an hour so it took it took a while to get there and yeah. especially in the bronco with no windows and toe sacks sewed uh, sewed in the windows to keep the snow out they got a little old after five six years
0: and the, the hunting cabin you lived in did all the trapping is that what's your the dugout yeah that's
1: a half it was a half dugout it's, it's it was built in 1948 when the pitchfork uh bought the matador uh that portion of the matador ranch on croton creek and so it was uh it was constructed in fact the uh, assist the manager whenever i first came to the pitchfork was jim Humphreys, and bob morehouse was the assistant manager And Jim Humphreys actually assisted in in building that dugout in 1948 whenever he was the assistant manager to the ranch. And so uh, when I I finished up at Tech, you know, I just decided to do something uh, that uh, would keep me in the outdoors every day, you know, every day of the month, all winter long. And so I asked uh, Jim if I could uh, live down there and trap coyotes, and he said, have at
0: it. Was that a relationship with your father that he had that you think got you in there? No, or did you no, know actually, him independently? no. They didn't know each other. Okay,
1: right. Yeah, that uh, dad was you know farther east there on the ranch on the Brazos, and Jim Jim was more up in, in Dickens and up in that area, Dickens County and uh, King County. So they didn't didn't really know each other. Uh,
0: how big was the ranch that your father was forming on? Uh, Twenty seven
1: thousand acres. Mm-hmm. It's a great place for for kids to grow up. My brother and I had a great great time there you know again learning how to work and uh, it being expected to get up in the morning uh before daylight saddle the horses go wrangle the horses saddle them up and then stay out all day long except for for lunch lay down at the stock stock tanks right uh alongside the horses and and drink drink water blow the bugs out of the way and drink the water from the tanks and that was that was my childhood
0: what, what age were you allowed to run free on that land?
1: Early on, actually, uh, uh, I, I find it kind of kind of amusing when, when parents today keep such close tabs on their kids because mother and dad would generally just say, okay, y'all watch for snakes. And, and we were like, you know, you know, seven or eight years old, and they just say, just, you know, don't go too far and watch for rattlesnakes. And we were allowed to go. And whenever we got too far, my mother, it seemed like she, she had this this uh, uh, premonition or some idea that we were too far away, and we could hear her voice a half a mile screaming, you know, y'all get back to the house, and we'd have our guns. We'd trudge back to the house with our dogs. You and, said there it, was a creek there. along there? It was a, There was a stock tank, an old stock tank. Her biggest fear was us falling into a stock tank and drowning. So we learned to swim very early. I mean, she took us and, and made us uh I Have swimming lessons because she was she was terrified of the idea of us falling in a stock tank and drowning. Yeah, and so so we kind of kind of we kind of pretty independent. It, it teaches kids to be independent and and uh, to be able to handle themselves, make decisions. You know, we'd run across rattlers and and uh, various. Uh, you'd hear them uh, and stand. Yeah, back. You'd, you were always watching them. It was like it was like. Um, as a child you know you raise a board up and you stood back when you did because there might be a rattle I remember one day raising the the uh, the door of an old chicken house up and there was a huge rattlesnake coiled up and I knew not to drop it you know because piss him off and so I just laid it down very easily and backed away and went and retrieved a shotgun and came back and shot him I don't do that today I don't kill rattlesnakes I just I figure that I'm invading their territory, so I just step aside and let them go. But uh, a lot of
0: people still kill them on site. Is that a and bad that's thing so to sad. Do? That's it,
1: so that's so sad to me.
0: To me, like the roundups and stuff. The Roundups and,
1: and it, it it's that's people, pretty close to you. It, yeah, Sweetwater's sweet sweet ninety water. miles. Yeah, and it, I find so many people that are so terrified of any snake, whether it's a bull snake, a king snake, you know, a little old garter snake, and I say, you know, just leave them alone. Like our dugout that my brother and I constructed a couple of years ago, um, it had a couple of racer snakes. Texas racers living in it, and so um, I just said, ah, they're not hurting anything. You know, we know what they are. Now, if I look up and see a diamondback coiled up up there in a the corner, I'm going to do something. Uh, but uh, but the racers, in fact, they when they left, they left their skin. You know, they they shed their skin, and we got to hang them hanging up on the deer antlers there as as ornaments. Yeah. But uh, They're yeah, part of it. They're, they're part of the part of the little the little
0: dugout. So in, in college you studied like ranch management. No, wildlife, well uh, wildlife biology. Wildlife biology. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then what other options did you see for yourself versus staying out in the wild? Well,
1: you know, there wa- there were no job opportunities at the time in 1974 when I graduated. And so I just thought, hey, this is a good opportunity for me to just go and just and do exactly what I want to do, not have to answer to anyone. So during this that that summer, I graduated. Which is what you've been doing all along. I saw much. it, and see that started it all. <laughs> yeah, that that began that whole mindset of I'm just going to do kind of what I want to do. And uh, and and I had not gotten into photography heavy at the time. It was just strictly hunting, although I had an interest in cameras because. I had been loaned a camera by my professor when I, was, when I was conducting research there at Tech, and, uh, and that's what got me kind of directed toward
0: 35-millimeter work. Because he told you he needed some— Needed some
1: uh, documenting, some data out in the field, you know, of various uh, species of plants, and so he loaned me an, an old Argus and told me to go down and get some Kodachrome, and, uh, and I went, whoa, I kind of like this. And uh, so whenever I moved down to batch camp and started trapping, well, I had my own camera. I'd purchased one after I gave his back to him and, uh, and started carrying my camera into the field with me and um, actually took a photograph while I was trapping. I, you know, I was very ignorant. I didn't have any mentors, you know, to, to go to a, just the just camera store. You know, the guy's are gonna sell you a camera, they're gonna tell you anything. And uh, so um, I just, it was about trial and error and um, didn't know anything about uh, reflective surfaces and the zone system. I just, just shot pictures and they turned out you know, fairly well. What's the warm. zone system? Well, that's, that's you know, you, you understand that, that white is zone nine and black is zone, zone one or zone zero. And so an optimum, the, the, the neutral gray is about a zone five or zone six. And of course, all of your all the photographers are pretty aware of that, especially videographers. They have their gray card. And so, um, um, I took a shot one day. There was a coyote in a trap, and it was kind of kind of a sad deal. You know, he he was a fighter. And I remember I was in J2 pasture on the Pitchfork Ranch, and it was an overcast, rainy day. And he was wrapped up pretty pretty uh, tight with a trap, but he he was really Fighting me hard, and I kind of hated to, you know, to take him out, but, but I had to skin him, and make make, make some money. But I took a, took a photograph of him, and he had man, he had his mouth open and just his teeth bared, and it was like, you know, I know this is it, but I'm going to fight you to the bitter end. And and that picture was chosen in Texas Monthly as in their book, uh, hundred of the best Texas Monthly images they ever published. That was one of the images they chose, and I had no—I didn't know what I was doing. It was—it was the feel, you know. It was that connection with that animal, and knowing it was the end, and—and and I respected that, and I wanted to capture that, you know, that—that the—the feeling of the, of the moment, and—and and it apparently it did. And I—I I knew nothing about photography at the time. It was just that feeling I had, and of course the light played into it because it was overcast and no deep shadows and it just everything was just perfect especially with Kodachrome it worked out just 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 right
0: you were shooting photography and still killing them for quite a while there was a lot of overlap
1: Yeah, there was a lot of overlap it's uh um but I always kept it separate you know if I hunted I hunted Mm. that was it and if I photographed that was it that, you know it wasn't yeah. a good mix to try to do both of the I guess the same yeah time. you couldn't
0: do it do it quality both ways right it had to be right. one or the other mm-hmm. and when did photography take over the desire for, for shooting them
1: you know uh, you know probably in the 90s early 2000 you know you, you get to a point where um, you know I, I've, I've shot a lot I've hunted a lot, and um, and it's 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 again it's it's, it's a process, you know. Of, of finally you go, okay, that's that's kind of enough. Now I'd like to just just uh, acknowledge the animal and the natural history of the animal through the f- photographic medium. And I still do a little bit of hunting, but not like I used to. And know, it, the the hunting
0: it. was was financially how you were making a living. That right? was how I was making
1: a living early early on. Um, but uh, but the photography, you know, was the, the hunting actually established, set, set the course for my photography. To this very day, when I go into the old jail house, which is our museum, basically, and I look at those old photographs on the wall of me sitting there in front of all those furs, and I'm thinking, those days set the pace for, for what I do today. They established the foundation. and, and I got give it, I got to give it the tip of the hat. Yeah, you know, it was. It was. I wouldn't do it again.
0: I wouldn't take that life on again,
1: but I wouldn't trade for it.
0: Yeah. How many uh, those photographs with those with those coyotes skinned up on the porch and all the way across? How, yeah. how many days of hunting hunting?er That was a, how each. Much each of those was 30 days. 30 days. So that's yeah, a month. Because I'd sell at work. the
1: end of the month and get get my money and make you know pay my bills. And Could you tell they were again.
0: thinning out based on your call? After uh, the first winter, they were. Yeah, especially the the cats, which is not a bad thing, right? Well, no, Talk actually, about the balance of that country out there. Well,
1: uh, there's coyotes are not going to overdo themselves. They're not like deer. See, deer don't uh, they'll actually stay and just starve to death in one area. Coyotes won't do that. So, whenever people say, "Well, I've got too many coyotes," well, that's that's a subjective call. Uh, if there's a lot of cows, there's a reason for them being there. There's enough food for them. If there's not, they pull out. And so uh, that's kind of, uh, there's enough of them to where you can do some culling, and it's not a big issue, but you don't want to go overboard with it because that's when you start getting your, your uh, species that are uh, not favorable to like ground-nesting birds, quail, for instance, uh, a lot of raccoons move in, a lot of skunks move in because coyotes take a heavy toll on, on those those creatures. And those are the most uh, devastating on, on nesting quail.
0: Well, like when you're calling and stuff on the King Ranch, where they they constantly? I, I hear a lot down at the coast that coyotes yeah. cause a lot of devastation to 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 uh, shoreline birds and. and different- I'm sure
1: they. I'm sure they. I've not I've not hunted coyotes on the King Ranch, but. Uh, but I've done some um some calling in South lots of calling in South Texas, especially on the San Antonio Viejo. But um I'm sure that they they do uh make inroads on nesting nesting shorebirds. I yeah. don't know that because I'm not a I'm not a coastal man. I'm I'm a panhandle guy. Yeah. But I do know uh, what coyotes prey on in, in the panhandle region. And uh and Dale Rollins, a quail expert, will uh probably one of the great Quail experts of our time will tell you that quail and coyotes go together nicely, because the coyotes take out your uh, your ground predators, your the ones that are devastating to, to uh, mm. nesting birds on the ground, like like your skunks, armadillos also will disrupt nests, but raccoons are really bad, and uh, and so they've uh, they've done some. In my own research on uh, food habits of coyotes, they were mostly, unless they were pressed into it, they were mostly uh, omnivores, herbivores. They ate lots and lots of mesquite beans, lots of loat berries, uh, juniper berries, um, and they would eat meat only when they were pressed, pressed to, which is generally late winter. And uh, I think Dale, Dale's research has found pretty much the same thing. Uh, sometimes, if it's in a in a area where there's a, a high population density of deer, they will feed on on fawn. But uh, but a coyote's basically a lazy animal. You know, if they can get by with eating a few beetles and and some uh, cedar berries, well, that's what they're going to go for.
0: Hmm. How about the bobcat? Bobcat is
1: is pretty much a uh, a carnivore.
0: Yeah, they're gonna they're gonna go
1: after your birds, uh, lots of rats. Uh, I have actually extracted the the stomachs from bobcats, and almost every time that you do a stomach analysis on a bobcat, he's eaten a lot of pack rats, a lot of wood rats.
0: That's not a bad thing at all. That's not a bad thing at all. How many coyotes per bobcat if you were calling? You don't call in a lot of
1: bobcats. Uh, I call only in the daytime. Now, if you're going for, for bobcats seriously, nighttime is much easier but I'm, I'm, I like to watch things come in at daytime, answer a call uh, during the daylight hours because most of the time I'm photographing. And so I'll call in maybe four or five bobcats a winter uh, to 150 coyotes. I think this last winter I called in 148 coyotes. And uh, I, I still keep all of my notes, uh, how long it took each one to come in, the uh, uh, weather conditions of that day, and uh, the location, and so, in fact, I just I just uh, um, finished up my my report of last winter's calling uh, just the other day. And I told I told Celinda, to my wife, I said, Jesus gets old working numbers, you know, figuring out, uh, you know, the averages of and, and temperature, daily a temperature. discipline. It is a discipline, but I've, I've done that for 40
0: years since your early since even uh, even all those pelts. You were That wasn't a, a necessary part of that. A part of that program for you, you just did it to keep records. Or? I just
1: did it to keep records, and you know, I started that in the 60s. And uh, I started initially, it was how many that I'd shot, and I would just like mark off a number one, two, three, four. I still remember October 17th, 1965. I killed my first coyote 267 yards, uh, yes, yeah, 267 yards, uh, at a dead run with a 30 30. And I and I piled rocks up on the spot where he went down, and I can go to that spot today, and and look at it and just remember that very first one that was so long ago.
0: Was that on the ranch your your father took care of? Yeah, I called him up, but um,
1: but I started and and I wrote it down. I still have that piece of paper. Wyman Menzer killed a coyote, October seventeenth, nineteen sixty-five. On this day, the weather conditions were like this at two fifteen in the afternoon. That was the beginning. And uh and then for the next hundred or so, all I did was just marked them off. And then I started thinking, well, you know, maybe I need to start really taking a lot of notes, you know, the in-depth notes. And then of course that was what initiated the professors to get a grant to have me study them for a year there at tech as an undergraduate. And then I got paid to go home. I could quit cowboying finally and just hunt coyotes all weekend and of course the only drawback was you had to extract their stomachs and that's that's kind of a nasty business and inspect uh, can do a do a count on on all the food items in their stomach collect feces and uh, i would cut uh, a, a shoulder bone out and have to uh have to label it and they would do some sort of a, a, a ancillary sideline
0: research on, on that how much variation in their natural characteristics is there? Meaning, just color and size? Uh,
1: there's and, there's a lot of color variations. Uh, you know, you'll have your grizzled, uh, uh, kind of German Shepherd looking coyotes. The further north you go, the the uh, the uh, more grayish they get. The more uh, better pelt, much thicker underfur. In fact, thirty miles makes a difference. Uh, The coyotes that that I would catch in Knox County uh, when I was selling the fur would bring on the average of $5 less than those caught in King County and in Dickens County because it was uh, about uh, 500 or maybe even 1,000 feet difference in elevation. It was just a little bit colder, and so you had
0: a little bit better fur. Do you think all that analysis helped you keep sane out there? On the plains, you know, oh, a, a man by himself in his young years. Yeah, you know, living I, in a cabin, I, ke- I kept
1: a, I kept a journal. I kept a, a daily journal, and it was pretty pretty basic. You know, today, you know, I got up and fixed breakfast, and went out and set this many traps, and you know, brought brought in this many animals. Uh, but I was going through that journal recently, and occasionally, occasionally, I would. Come up with something uh, pretty interesting, especially the last at the very end of the trapping season in 1974 when I was lamenting the end of the winter because it had been such a magical time, such a, uh, such a, a memorable four months uh, living by myself, you know, um, being able to accept myself as who I was, what I could do. You know what I could achieve as just on my own, and I talked about the light playing on the hills, and uh, and the sunsets in the evening, and the sun rises, and uh, that that the setting sun was like uh, something to the effect of uh, symbolic of the end of a great winter. And uh, and it was it was a pretty pretty neat pretty neat phrase that I wrote. At the very end of that that, 19,
0: that winter, seventy four and seventy five. That's neat. Did you read a bunch out there? Uh this hunt come on. Not up, go to sleep. not <laughs>
1: much. I, I had I had a little radio. I listened. You could barely get uh, um, a channel out of Lubbock. I remember. Also, I kept I kept a uh, a little a, a tape player, and for about three two months there, I actually taped some of my notes, taped some of my thoughts of the day. I remember, I just listened to one just the other day, first time in years, and in the background I could hear "I Shot the Sheriff," by yes. so, yeah. <laughs> Bob Marley in the background. There, <laughs> it was uh, some of that. Music. But not the deputy. Uh, but I, yeah, I didn't shoot the deputy. What was your brother doing all that time? He was doing some trapping, a little bit of trapping as well, but he was over in Knox County and not not on the on the level that i was doing it you know he was on kind of part-time and then eventually he got into it full-time as well
0: i was thinking about it leading up to talking to you and i got real interested in the idea that that all that hunting experience and using light to your advantage as as a top predator as Mm -hmm. a hunter Mm -hmm. started lending itself in terms of of the knowledge you gained being out there and appreciating light and it, it just puts you in in a special seat to become a photographer, even though those scales and different terminology about photography right. was foreign to you, but what you wanted to capture right. and your love for that for that country, the hunting was did place. The
1: hunting did uh, play a part in my appreciation of light, because I would start out very early in the mornings, and of course, as I would come, you know, the the cabin was down in the, in the, in the bottom of a, of a canyon. And I would, I would uh, climb up I, probably a 300 foot, if it was a vertical climb, out of the canyon. And then um, I would watch the light play, you know, the sunrise, it would hit the tops of the cliffs and it would work its way down the canyon walls. And I was mesmerized by the, you know, by, the, by the color, the warmth of the light, early morning light, and the frost down in the bottom of the canyon versus no frost on top. And, uh, and then once I started photographing, especially photographing for magazines, all of this played an important role because I remember a, an editor at uh, Sports Afield saying, you have a very unique view of light. You're, I love the way that you work light into your photographs and also the angle at which you shoot. And that angle comes from the years of hunting. Of, of, of sitting down low in the grass and your, and your eye level with the creatures. You know, I didn't climb up in stands or anything like that. Everything was on the ground. And so that's the way I shot my imagery as well. And it was Gary Gretter from Sports and Field. And I, I'll never forget him telling me that, that you have an eye for light and angle. And so that was, my, that was my, the style uh, that actually sourced from
0: the years of hunting. It, it almost has like an oil painting quality. A lot of those shots. Some of it, yes. Yeah, some of it, some of it is Which exactly is kind of mm-hmm. the, the most romantic way to, to look at something outside of being in that canyon at first light yourself. Mm-hmm. And most photography for me is, is, is comes farther down the list of, of appreciation. But your photographs of that country mm-hmm. puts you right next to being there. Right. That's 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 what I hope to, to convey. How, how did you start, like, really deciding, like, instead of just taking pictures, the composition and the attitude of the animal, capturing the essence of that moment? You know, of course, the composition. You had to develop these. This is not, this not digital a, photography where you yeah, take a like, hundred thousand shots and look at them all exactly. on a computer and you go
1: something. You know what? You know, and I have to wait a week to get my film back. And you and and in the early early days, I would write down my exposures and then get the images back and see what I did wrong because at that time in the late in the mid and late 70s there really were no substantial editorial photographers that I knew. You know, you had your parks and wildlife guys. I don't even recall their names now but they were good and I would I would look at their imagery but you had uh, Perry Shankle and Jerry Smith. Those were the two guys that were shooting nationally at the time. And uh and so they lived in San Antonio and Alice, Texas. And obviously that's, you know, 500, 600 miles from me. So I had no one to, to, uh, to call or ask questions to about, you know, what do I do here to make this better? So it was all by trial and error. And so, uh, the, all the, the, uh, knowledge of composition that, and in light, it all come from just experience. And, um, I guess it was kind of a, my mother photographed a lot. Hmm. So I must have gotten some of it from my mom, but she always had an old Kodak uh, 120 with her all the time. And thank goodness, because Daddy, all he did was work cattle. Yeah. Uh, he had no interest in photography, no interest in hunting, uh, and all the hunting came from my grandfather on my mother's side. He was a big hunter and a trapper.
0: How much time did you get to spin around him, like, to learn about rifles? A lot. And- he died in 1973. He was in Knox County as well?
1: Actually, he was in Knox County, and he came from the Indian Territory. Born in Georgia and then went to the Indian Territory and then came to Texas. His brother was killed in a gunfight in Oklahoma uh, in the teens. I still have the, the newspaper article. They had a little issue with drinking moonshine. And, uh, but he hunted and trapped during the Depression. Um, it was hard on my mom and, and uh, her, her brothers and sisters because, you know, times were tough. And they lived in dugouts and tents. And uh, my grandfather, um, to be quite honest, he made whiskey and he hunted and trapped. Yeah. He's he having did, a good time. He's having a good time. And so But he would uh, take my brother and I fishing. And, uh, and and hunting, and we apparently got it from what him. What a
0: great outlet. Otherwise, it had just been work, work, work yeah. for you. <laughs> All we did,
1: we'd run, pick up his his rabbits that he shot. You know, we'd walk along behind him when he'd shoot cottontails with his 16-gauge shotgun, single-shot shotgun.
0: So he, he, he taught you marksmanship?
1: He did. I still remember the day he would sit out on the cellar uh, and watch my brother and I shoot, and he'd say, well, you know, you shot better today than than Rick did, and yesterday Rick shot better than you. You know, and you guys are going to be good shots someday. So there's what? an
0: image of you shooting a, a rifle in the Yeti film, Chasing Light. hmm And you're standing, and the gun looks real steady. Offhand, yeah. Is that, is that how That's, he expected you to
1: shoot? We, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, of course, you know, when you're hunting, it's wise to grab, you know, the best stance you can. If you can, you know, the, the steadier you are, you know, you're less likely to, to wound the animal. But I also shot a lot of, my brother and I both shot a lot of competition in the 80s. It was offhand, you know, shoot out to 500 meters and such. And you were, you were not allowed to take rest. So we did a lot of practice offhand so that we would be extra good when we had a rest. So whenever, even today, I'll shoot. I'll shoot offhand if if possible, not in hunting, but just in practicing. Because it just once you do have a rest, you have the luxury of getting a rest. You can shoot damn well. If you can shoot really well, you know, fairly well offhand, you can shoot uh, extremely well when you've got a rest.
0: Did you always swing into a target, or would you try to like what's?
1: Well, you know, in in. Uh, My brother and I both were fairly good shots on running game. And we learned, of course, thank goodness my dad is is not allowed, I mean, not alive to hear this. We learned by shooting my dad's chickens running with BB guns. (laughs) I swear, that was where we learned to swing. Y'all never bit into homework. what's that? (laughs) We learned to swing ahead and to lead running game by shooting my dad's white Legers running with a BB gun. Of course, I mean he bounced off of them and sure. they'd, they'd run off cackling, but uh, but we did that a lot. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Never caught you. Huh? <laughs> yeah, he did catch us and put our BB guns up for a week at a time. But how about even a still target from three hundred yards and you Kentucky elevation? Yeah, we we uh, did you swing into that animal. <coughs> because i'm working on my well, shot if they're
1: just if they're just and you know, if they're, if it's a stationary yeah no you just you just pull up and just figure you know in your mind that's about 300 yards so i'm all i'm always sighting in at 200 mm-hmm. and it's going to be about a six seven inch drop depending on the rifle you're shooting if it's a 30 30 i never shoot that far if it's a 220 swift and aim to give it two or three inches above because it's a flat shooting rifle
0: Maybe I'm just wobbly because it seems if I try to pin it on them, then I'm just. Well, yeah. If you yeah. versus if I just come in and kind of drop down right at the.
1: Usually, I will just I'll just come in from the top and pull down on them like that. Okay, so there is Just come in from the top and just and just lay it down on them.
0: Were you hunting for food as well as trapping back then to support yourself? You...
1: Well, I would kill a deer. <clears throat> Excuse me, I would kill a deer and hang him up on the porch, and just cut meat off of him and cook and cook the the venison. Until it finally got so dry you couldn't eat it, and but I'd go to town once a week and get groceries, and uh, each day it was real. Uh, uh, got to w- pretty boring. Uh, my lunch each day on the trap line was summer sausage, on a uh, toasted bread, uh, with uh, with uh, cheese and Tabasco sauce, and water every day. I never drank Dr. Pepper's or Cokes. Never took that out there, just water. And bread and some sausage every day, and that got a little old.
0: I bet. And you said some cheese where you drop some all.
1: cheese on Tabasco sauce. I <laughs> Always had to had to have that Tabasco
0: sauce. So when you switched to photography, as uh, you how did how did it click? Like this, I could I could do something here with this.
1: I actually became interested in editorial work in about 1976. I was uh, I was um, reading some magazines and thought you know I could I could probably do this if I could just if I could just learn the techniques and how to use a you know the camera correctly, and uh, I remember I made my first submissions in seventy seventy seven. I still have the first rejection letter from Bill Reeves, Parks and Wildlife. Dear Mr. Menzer, we appreciate your interest in Parks and Wildlife magazine. However, I still have it today, and. Uh, And that, you know, the first one was okay. The second one really kind of pissed me off,
0: and I started thinking, you know, I am going to learn how to do this correctly. Do you remember what you sent them that got rejected?
1: Yeah, it was a backlit. uh, It was a backlit images of some bugs on on a flower. It's pretty, you know, pretty mundane, but it was cool to me because the lighting was kind of unusual and shooting some macro stuff. But I can see today well, they didn't have any use for it. I mean, I wouldn't send it, you know, after you became more mature in your photography. And so I just started really working hard and uh, and submitting. And in 1979, I kind of cracked cracked into it. And then after that, <clears throat> I realized that I couldn't I couldn't uh, go back as far as my quality. I had to keep improving all the time because because uh, you know. The readers become very sophisticated, you know. You you can't you can't stay static in the quality of your work, and you've always got to be improving. And so, also at the same time that I published with Parks and Wildlife, I published with uh, National Wildlife, and then I started submitting immediately to to New York, to Field and Stream, Outdoor live and Sports of Field. Now that was an experience. I mean, you're talking about I was a, a green guy out here, you know. Green is a gourd as far as photography. And I started shipping to New York. And those guys would tell you how to do the dance now. They'd ship them back to you in a hurry. But I made a sale right off the bat to Field and Stream, And that gave me encouragement.
0: What was that? What was that image? It was a
1: white-tailed deer. It was a white-tailed buck. They bought one image. And those were in the days when they bought them and they kept them. And you just accepted it, of course, you know, it became. They had,
0: they had full rights to that. Full rights, for life. all rights. You, you use I just it wanted
1: to be published. I didn't yeah. care. Yeah, take the, take the image, you know. And then in 1980, and in fact, <clears throat> right after that, I hit uh, three national covers in one year, uh, one month. first month I got three national covers. It was in March. It was in uh, Peterson Hunting, American Hunter, and uh, uh, Sports Field. Hot Dog. And I realized then uh, that I could do it. And then I got another cover in sports field, like in September. And uh, no, actually one in July and then September. And I realized that I'd reached that level that, that I needed to maintain. I knew what they were looking for. And then it began. In nice. Mm-hmm.
0: And, a, and, a, and a man can make a good living back then? Or well, not-
1: you could make a living. You can make a living. I had to work like in the off seasons. I did various things. Heck, I drove a diesel truck for a while. At the same time also, I was, I was working to get my pilot's license, and I would, I'd fly around. I'd look for cattle for, uh, for ranchers and just whatever I could do to make some extra money. And then in 1985, <clears throat> I received a call uh, or a letter from one of the contributing editors of uh, Sports Afield. Lionel Atwell was his name. And he said, you've been chosen as one of five photographers in America as the new breed. And I'm going to be interviewing you for a story on, on you guys. And it just kind of started just popping after that. just got better. More things, more accolades, and more. one accolade to leads to another, to another job. And then in the late 80s, I, I sort of uh, became bored with shooting just wildlife. I felt like I I had more to offer, you know, landscape, people, uh, skyscapes, um, culture, and so I started branching out, and uh, and that was the best best move I could have made because I started. Uh, I remember one of my first assignments was from Ducks Unlimited, and I had to shoot wildlife, people, architecture, all at one shoot down on the coast, and uh, and I wrap
0: it all up into a ball, huh? Into a into one package, yeah.
1: And so I realized I would made the right move.
0: You didn't take any pictures on Sixth Street last night after we dropped you off at <laughs> no, the Driscoll. No, <laughs> I went to bed. <laughs> that was some good pictures. That was that, was, that was
1: wilder wildlife than I've seen in a while.
0: <laughs> at what point, and and what did it mean to you to become the official photographer of the state of Texas? Well,
1: that came as a surprise. Um, that was in uh, nineteen ninety seven. And it was being it was being pushed along by a um uh, rep, state representative and uh a senator out of Lubbock. Uh he's now the Chancellor at Tech. And um so I just got a I just received a call one day. Just said, Hey, can you can you be in the office from the governor's office? Yeah, from the governor's office. Well, actually no, from the state representative's office. Uh, and he asked if I could uh, be in austin like on monday and this was like on friday i said well yeah i guess i can but I said, what for and he said well you've been you've been established or selected as state photographer of texas and i said okay and he said we'll
0: bring a suit has that been done before no you were yeah, the first in the it, first and one, it yeah. doesn't rotate you're the man i guess so until i'm dead that's awesome uh, man yeah. that's so cool i told ryan as we were picking you up last night i'd have <laughs> You know, I'd be the cock on the block wherever I went <laughs> if that was my title. That, well it was a even title. Even if people don't know it, I'd still be strutting <laughs> yeah, along. It was, That's it was a awesome. title So it, cool. you
1: know, no no pay, although it, it had its <laughs> it had its advantages.
0: You so know. your photography was inspiring enough and represented this state and its habitat right so well that they created that classification. Apparently so.
1: And it's and I think I think people have asked me in the past, you know, why did they choose you? And I said the only thing I don't know for a fact, but, but a lot of photographers will specialize. They'll do just wildlife or just landscape or just culture. And mine pretty well covered, gave a salute to all of those things that identified with Texas.
0: Did that validate all the time you spent trapping, all the time you spent so. in yes. the field yes, by yourself, did. wondering what is my what place in the world on am this planet? What world am I going to do next year? Right. Yeah. And that that all came back. It all finally came. came Congratulations home. on that. Oh, so that's you. amazing. Thank you. Did did things really start popping? Well, yeah. Uh, did the I, gates the, to every the, exclusive actually, ranch in Texas open up to you at that point?
1: Well, well, actually,
0: um, I started. Y'all good? I'm sorry. you
1: no, go ahead. I, um, I I started actually started uh, working into the book business in the in the 90s early 90s and uh my first book was the roadrunners i started kind of started pulling away from shooting editorial a little bit it was just getting old fighting it all the time you know just fighting with editors and you know trying to please everybody and so uh my first book was the roadrunner which was in 1993 and then in 95 i did uh, coyote and um wrote and photographed Coyote, and then I collaborated on the book uh, uh, Playas, Jewels of the Plains, with uh, Jim Steart. And so that's uh, two books came out in 95. And then in 95, I was asked to collaborate with Andy Sansom, Andrew Sansom of Texas Parks and Wildlife um, with uh, Texas Lost, Vanishing Heritage. And the reason he chose me, and he told me this, he actually told me this not long ago, Where I received um, uh, um, an award down in South Texas, down at the Wilder Wildlife Refuge. It was uh, um, a Living Legacy Award. Um, He said, Your first, the image that I, the reason that I chose you to shoot the book was an image that was published on the front cover of Parks and Wildlife in 1990. And it was a double truck of a great storm coming across the Badlands in our country it's only a mile from where I live. He said, that's what turned my attention to you right there. And it was amazing that one image could initiate such an amount of interest because I did two books with Andy. Was that a Northern? It was in March or April, and it was a it was a weather system. I don't know if you call it a norther or not, but it looked like a uh, almost like a tsunami, a wave coming across. Yeah, it was like fifty feet that high. one where it's
0: sweeping up it's from sweeping from, yeah, sweeping, from the horizon up into right. And it was yeah.
1: like just sweeping right across the top of the hills, and it was right at right at dawn, right at at sunrise. And just as I got in place, the light came over the horizon and just lit that thing up, and there was a rainbow coming out of it. And it was amazing. I've never seen anything since. That, that's quite like you were right there. Happened to
0: be right there with uh the, with the camera. What defines the Badlands, Texas? What's the geo? That's the geographical? that's the
1: rough the rough country. That's the uh, they call them the, the NOCO Badlands, Knox County, NOCO. And they actually are the drain that's the, the drainage basin to the Brazos River and to the Wichita River. And then you've got the narrows that separate them. That's the narrowest part, which is three and a half miles east of Benjamin. And in 1841, August the 14th, 1841, the Texas Santa Fe expedition crossed those narrows and they, de- they described it for the first time. They said to the, to the south, we could see the, the, uh, the white sands of the Brazos River. And to the north was the Wichita. And we were on a narrow band of land, barely wide enough to accommodate our wagons, and that's the first description of the Badlands that I that I've ever read. And they talk about the wide, dry torrents, and those are directly north of Benjamin. Falconer wrote in his journal uh, on the 14th before before sundown. He said, "I saddled up a horse, and I rode north into the into the wide, dry torrents." until I found water, which was too brackish to drink. And every morning, whenever the conditions are right, even today, Celinda and I will go down and we will walk through those exact same wide dry torrents that Falconer wrote about on August the 14th,
0: 1841. When did uh, studying in history, becoming a historian, take over for you?
1: I've always been interested in history but but it, it really came into play in about 1986 when some people stopped at my house and wanted to know if there were any old graves in that area that they could go and look at and they were they were historians from like Archer City and they, uh, they reinscribed that like a grave that you couldn't hardly read the writing well it would take and they would they would uh, uh, take a grinder and they they would sort of uh, uh, reinscribe the name and the date. And I said, Well, I know where there's a buffalo hunter's grave. Seal Swinney, who shot shot himself accidentally in 1878. It was you could barely read it on there, on the on the headstone. And so I took them to this location and they you know took the cemeteries just wasn't a cemetery just grave it was just out in the brush yeah. just one lonely gravestone sticking up a piece of native of sandstone and uh, and you could still you could still still uh, see seal swindy quite nicely but the date was almost gone said so shot himself accidentally and uh, that lady sent me a book right after that and it was Bordering the Buffalo, and it was uh, uh, written by John Cook. And it's about his years as a buffalo hunter in that region of Texas. And I went just absolutely wild after that. I started buying books that dealt uh, primarily in that time period from 1871 to about 1880, during that period when the buffalo hunting took place. And so I tried to read everything I could get my hands on. And so... uh, that's when I really became a, a serious historian. And I wish that, <clears throat> that more history teachers would teach their kids in a manner that would generate interest at the level that I had at that time, because I'm telling you, I would have made A plus in every history, history course I would have taken if, if a teacher taught as
0: those books. That inspired you that That's way. That's right,
1: could inspire me in that manner, yes.
0: Is much of it lost or is it still accessible? The the, history of, of pioneering west in this state now of texas um,
1: I, i'd collect as many books as i can there's a lot of but i tell you i'm i fear that a lot of the younger people don't read that enough i feel like that my generation are some of the last ones see i, I, had, a, I had a connection as i'd mentioned earlier i had a connection with the older genre of people that grew up in the late 1800s my my grandfather was born in 1889 and some of the old cowboys that my dad worked were born in the late 1880s, uh, late 1890s. And so uh, those guys kind of got me started, interested in history, and then, and then, but I don't think that a lot of the young people today take the time to talk to the older people like I did and some of my friends did. And, and plus they were sad. they
0: were coming to you with with accolades about your father and his talents that had to really And that helped. Th- that that helped, helped to get that you helped. really into right. it.
1: Right. But I would ask them a lot about like for instance I wish I would have asked them more right. about more, more in-depth questions but my my interest primarily lay in the wildlife species that existed then that don't exist now. For instance the buffalo wolves and I would ask them, about, hey, you know, did, you, did you ever see a wolf? And they say, well, you know, they were pretty well killed out when I was a young boy. But sometimes you would see their tracks. But my father would tell me stories about how the wolves would come and cut down the, the Mexican steers that they would bring in into that country to graze and, uh, and how they would kill, they would lure the dogs away from the, the houses at night and kill them in the, in the riverbeds. And uh, and so that would that would really pique my interest.
0: Could those could those fellows give uh, firsthand accounts or or of their fathers about Comanche?
1: No, uh, only one, only one. Wade House. He uh, he uh, told about his father riding from Benjamin and going. I think maybe over to Truscott. Which is like ten miles to the to the north, and coming across a band of Indians that was feeding on a dead cow, just the carcass of an old rotted dead cow, mm. and what a pitiful sight it was. And they probably came off the Indian territory out of uh, or came out of Oklahoma, and they were going from A to A to B, but they were so hungry they stopped and they were eating on an old cow that had died there by the river.
0: Wow. Yeah
1: said it was a poor, it was a pretty poor lot of people. Yeah, I bet. When
0: did you, when did you get to do that book on the Wagner Ranch? Did they invite you Yeah, they, there? Yeah,
1: they uh, contacted us to, to, uh, to shoot the book because um, there was a feeling that the ranch would, would sell and that they wanted to, to get a, a hardback book back, uh, you know, out that would show the ranch as it was, that it had been, you know, for generations. And so uh, that book uh, came out in about 2009, 2010, something like that. And, um, and I worked out there for, I shot for a year and a half, because 525,000 acres. It takes a while to cover that much country.
0: All the way from Wichita Falls to Benjamin, essentially?
1: Uh, almost. Yeah. Yeah, it covered, uh, what, four or five counties, parts of four or five counties. Yeah.
0: What, what, were you just ecstatic to have that opportunity?
1: I was, but see I had gone on the Wagner, the only time I would really been on the Wagner was in the 50s. And my dad took my brother and I there uh, to eat at the chuck wagon one day. And uh, I still remember, uh, you know, as a young kid, impressionable, you know, standing around looking, and here comes a, a bobtail truck whipping up full of cowboys in the back. And they all pile out and you, boots and spurs and leggings and. I kind of stepped back, and I remember one of them real gruffly said, get in line, boy, and get you something to eat. I just went, yes, sir. I jumped in line and got me a chicken fried steaks and red beans and sat down. But that was the only time I'd been on the Wagner. And so the, to have the opportunity to be handed a key and say, here it is, go. And so I uh, was uh, taken out about two days uh, with uh, a person who knew the ranch, and after that they said, okay, there it is. Just go, And so I would go to each cowboy that was over a, um, a camp. So you had various camps, McLarty Camp, uh, Paloma. Um, and so I would go and I'd say, what is it at this camp that you consider extremely interesting, extremely historical? Just what is something that really that you think, having lived here, that still interest you, and they would take me to these locations, or they would tell me about them, and I'd go try to find them. Like Cowboy Rock, Cowboy Rock is over in a place called Lost Lake, and it's an old oxbow in the in the uh, Wichita River that floods in the, in the wet years. Great waterfowl area, super waterfowl hunting there. They tell me, but there's a there's a tall hill with this boulder that's probably is uh, you know. Golly, as big as easily bigger than this uh, this uh, bar area, and it's up on a pedestal, and it has these names of the cowboys inscribed in it. The Wagner Cowboys, dating back to the twenties, and so I, they'd say, "Well, it's over at Lost Lake, and you get there this way," and I'd eventually find my way over there and climb up, and all of a sudden there would be the names, mm. and you'd find, them, or they'd say, "There's an old dipping vat. If you'll go such and such place, you'll find an old dipping vat." or the grave of a child that was buried in 1878 and, and those
0: dipping vats were for cattle They'd for cattle back in, medicine in, and in tick, there.
1: tick fever years right right i remember one day i found found a place that even the uh the, the wagon boss didn't know about he'd been there for 30 years and a, a big white tail buck had crossed the road in front of me really nice deer and i was going to try to get a photograph of him it was deer in the rut so i took a set of horns and I went out to to, to rattle, and of course he's, he was he was moving on, you know, checking his scrapes. But when I turned to look back to the northeast, uh, to the northwest, I could see in the brush I could see a an obstacle that was sticking straight up, and that's not normal. Everything is uh, in nature; it's, nothing is perfectly straight. And so I went. That's not supposed to be there. It's not natural. So I walked, you know, four or five hundred yards over there. And there were the outlines of a pen that had rotted into the ground. And you could see where the posts were. And you could see where the gate had fallen. The only thing was left was the, was the, uh, the metal. <clears throat> and there was an old dipping vat. And so I went and told the, uh, the wagon boss about it. And he said, I didn't know it was there. I said, I've never seen it. And so I asked uh, Boots O'Neill... Who's uh, an old timer? His brother actually worked on the Wagner for 50 some odd years. And, but I asked Boots O'Neill, I said, uh, Do you know anything about a. He worked on the 460s, about a, a, a uh, dipping vat over in the old McLarty. He said, You know what? He said, I think that might be the place that way back in the early years they pinned some cattle there and they dipped them that afternoon and that night a norther came in and froze a bunch of the cows to death and the wagon boss thought well that's it you know i'm fired so he turned and rode to headquarters and told the manager the the owner said look i've you know a bunch of our cattle froze to death last night and i'm here to collect my check i'm gone he said you couldn't help it go back to the wagon go to work he said i think that was would that happen?
0: oh that's pretty interesting yeah. you were on the wagner hunting weren't you ryan
2: yeah we uh you know, i guess after it sold they decided to do some commercial hunts for the first time and and uh so we heard about that and just had always heard you know had heard about the wagner and and uh, the big wheat fields up there and and so we jumped on the opportunity my brother and i to um to To get in and kind of see the see the Wagner right at, at for us at the, the first time you could mm-hmm. get access to it because as uh, Wyman was talking about last night they were always pretty uh, tight about who got on there and mm-hmm. it was you know closed off so we just it, it it you know it was neat to go up there and hunt but it was more about the opportunity just to see the ranch uh, I guess like it had been mm-hmm. for all those years five
0: hundred plus thousand acres right
1: mm-hmm. Wyman that's correct five hundred twenty five thousand I believe what's the
0: what's the square miles of what what is that i have no idea
1: <laughs> but it
0: but it, it's bigger than the city but, limits of austin isn't it
1: but it's what what's interesting about it is that it's it's all under one fence it's it's all it's it's not broken up into sections like the king ranch is 900 you know approximately 900,000 acres but it's in different regions different areas you have to go 25 miles between on the Wagner, once you enter the gate, you're on the ranch for 525,000
0: acres. It's- talk about some of the, like, last night at dinner, you told me about a deer that you that you called in, rattled in. Was that on the Wagner? Oh, no, that was on San Antonio Viejo. Oh, sorry. Right. Well, right. I wanted to hear some deer talk from yeah. you guys. <laughs> sorry to get that mixed up. I was trying to hang in there. Yeah.
1: Well, I did a lot of, uh, of predator calling on the Wagner and photographing and – uh Uh, some deer rattling on the Wagner but mostly I just tried to cover as much country as possible and in that in that way you could see a lot of deer I didn't stay around the wheat fields much I just stayed out way back out in the the further back out into the wilder country untapped country that's where I like to go because I wanted to show what most people wouldn't see Uh, and so uh, so uh, cedar top what they call cedar top that was a that was kind of a uh outback area um and um there was some old dugouts one of the cowboys actually took me and it was way back out we had to go on my my polaris Ranger and uh and go to these old dugout locations. we dug up a nickel 1885 nickel there but i tried to stay in areas where off the main beaten path
0: to do most of my photography yeah and that tell us real quick about that that grave of that young woman
1: yeah, uh, she died in 1896, and uh, it's in a place called Indian Creek, or, or Comanche Creek, Comanche, or, or just Comanche is the name of the pasture, Comanche. And um, I don't know what she died from. She was young, but, uh, but I remember going over there to, to get the shot that I really wanted. I'd go by it each, you know, every few days, and, you know, you could get it in great light, and that's fine. But I wanted to get a mood of loneliness, of the greatness of the land, the enormity of the land. And so one particular day I went by and there was one cow standing off to the side in this vast grassland with nothing but just open country. And so I set the camera up in the back of my pickup and I ran over and this cow, of course, they were pretty wild and she took off. And as she walked by herself in the distance across that open grassland with the grave in the foreground, that was the shot. Awesome. Because you had this one lonesome cow on this this ocean of land with this one lady who had died in 1896. And it all came together at that moment.
0: That's so neat. Well, it's just neat to really show respect for those individuals. Yeah. These that, stories aren't told that are just laying out there and... They are. Single marked graves across our. There's
1: one over in Indian Creek, a little boy who died in 1878. Nobody really knows a story about him. But there's an old hand dug well there with one rock over it. Otherwise, it's just a hole in the ground that goes way down. If you run in horseback, or running a, a wild cow, you know, you've got problems if you, if you ran into that thing. And a uh, piece of an old dug out there, and that's all. A grave an old hand-dug well, and a dugout.
0: They deserve a little song or something. They do. They do. Or at least a prayer. All right, so how do you get all those pictures of those amazing white-tailed deer? Uh, most of that
1: is rattling. I'm at, uh, on the San Antonio Viejo, our last book uh, down in uh, Jim Hogg County, uh, <clears throat> it's, it was a ranch that had not had any public access for 100 years. It was purchased, I think, in 1915, and the last owner died, I think, in 2007. And it was left to a foundation, and so uh, these these were ranchers who who loved good horses, a good breed of cattle, and they loved wildlife. They didn't like they did have some poaching on there, but um, uh, and they always had pet you know pet antelope. Uh, there's old historical pictures of the of the um, Oh, it's uh, Lisa, the, the, one of the daughters, and she had, she's got a little pet antelope. That's whenever you had antelope in the Wild Horse Desert region in the coastal plains. And, uh, and there was always a rule. You never uh, killed even the rattlesnakes around the house. Everything was left alone. And so when I was contacted to do this book and uh, actually to start a photo repository in 2013, and the drought was still there still still was the country was in the drips grips of the drought um it, the country looked rough but Selinda and i went down and started uh, creating this this collection of photo- photos and then it then it worked into a book project but we'll go down in december and just and just rattle and i mean you don't know what's coming out of the brush because you know and on an average place when you rattle you have a bunch of eight points come up or six points down there you have like 10 and 12s Is this in.
0: near a feeder or a stand? No, no, no. This no, is, no. is just out nothing. in the woods. There's
1: nothing, it's 150,000 acres. I love that. 150,000 acres, and it's... it's uh, uh, of course, when we first went down there, they had not really done any improvements on the ranch. So it was like when Robert East had passed away. I mean, he was a very eccentric person. He wanted everything left alone. They captured something like 5,000 Mavericks on that place and sold them. And that's, I mean, that's that's pretty amazing. I mean, we're talking about cattle as wild as deer. Wow. And so this this place was like stepping back fifteen, sixty years.
2: I heard that uh, it was one of the last places, you mentioned Pronghorn earlier, that there was a little herd of Pronghorn mm-hmm. in South Texas. I think so that's. That, you don't think of Pronghorn being in South Texas. But right. They survived for quite a while down there on that place because everything was left alone.
1: Right. And there's that photograph of Lisa, and she's got that baby yeah. baby fawn uh, antelope. And that was way back, probably in the, maybe in the 30s. She was, uh, no, she was a teenager. She was born in about 19, she was born in 1918, 1919, 19, something like that. So she was just a young lady.
2: Another real interesting thing I thought was uh, that I'd heard about they have never been on that ranch, but been on the King Ranch some before they started, commercial, or you know, as they started first commercial mm-hmm. hunting it, uh, was that the deer, they just wanted to stay out of, like, primitive weapon range of, of humans, so if, if they were outside 30 yards from you, they really didn't pay you much attention, you know, right. it, was, it was just, it was when you got inside, what, what an Indian could hurt a deer, it, and that's where they started. Is, right. is that behavior
0: based on coexistence, thousands of years?
1: I you know I don't know I I can tell you that even though there wasn't any hunting on there, the really big whitetails, they were wild. <laughs> that's just that's just a genetic that's just genetically coded in them. Yeah. They were wild. I mean the cowboys would say, they would say you know muy grande, muy grande venado and certain pasture, and they would go like this, double drop, you know, and I'd head over there, but you'd never find him. Because they, they just wouldn't. They're just but, so smart. But, you're, but you'd you find some big bucks sometimes standing right there, just standing there eating a cactus and drive right up to him. I know one, uh, uh, two years ago, I got a tremendous sequence of fight, two big bucks fighting. And it was a, a big, uh, really big nine-point, um, mature, probably six-year-old deer. And he had a doe, and he was just working a scrape right within 100 yards of the road. So I pulled the Polaris over and took 100 images of him until I got bored, and I said, let's go. You know, so went, we went and rattled up a buck, and it was noontime. So when we went back by this place, I said, there's that buck still out there. Let's kind of ease out there and see if anything different has happened. And, uh, and he didn't pay us any mind until a younger buck, a little old raghead, six-point, come walking to me, and he phew, went out after him. And I made the comment to Celinda, if another deer his size showed up, we would see a fight. And almost when I finished the sentence, here come a deer I thought was the same big buck from the north. This big nine went south. And I said, well, how did you get around there so quick? And he was just trotting in real quickly. And then all of a sudden, I heard horns. Bam. And they were like. 25 yards away behind a mott of trees. I went. I looked at Selinda and went, fight. I just fell out of the, the uh, Polaris and got on my knees and crawled around this mott of trees, and they were measured 11 steps away from me, those two big bucks going at him. Oh, man. I took 100 images of them fighting. They I could have run up and hit them on the butt with my hand. Mm. They didn't care. The biggest danger was them running over me. Because yeah. like a whitetail... Uh, our dad always told us as kids, stay away from two fighting bulls because when one loses, they'll run over everything in sight. They they don't they don't care. In the same way about a white-tailed deer. Luckily, they turned and went north, and I
0: south of them. Is this place close to your ranch, Ryan?
2: No, it's really that's closer over towards the coast, and we're you know over near Eagle Pass on on the river over there. So it's mm-hmm. quite a ways actually, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. different part of South Texas. Yeah. Um, but it's pretty wild country over
0: there, also. How rare is like a 19-point buck with drop tines and all that? I mean, I've never seen anything like that in the wild. Well, I've seen 10 and 12 this, points, but I've never seen anything that magnificent.
1: See, they do they do uh, research on this ranch, and they'll capture about 200 deer a year, and they'll tag them. Uh, they'll tip tip their horn, it dip, tip one antler, to keep somebody of a poacher from shooting them especially if it's a big deer, really big deer. And it's not often they'll catch a drop tine. And then this past winter, Celinda and I were out uh, coming back from, uh, from the far side of the ranch one day, late one evening, and there stood a triple drop tine beside the road with a doe, and nobody had ever seen him. None of the cowboys had seen him. Nobody had seen him from the helicopter. He was just appeared, and I photographed him. He took off, and, uh, and I thought I'd lost him. And he was, he was in a typical – the, the, uh, those big deer sometimes will get in a mode in the breeding season whenever they just become almost drunk, and they'll actually let you follow them around for a little while. And this buck allowed me to follow within 30 or 40 yards of him for, for like an hour and a half. And then he just shook his head and loped off, and I never saw him again. Nobody's ever seen him since. Mm. And I got some really good shots of him. Did you get a cover out of that one? I haven't even tried to send it to anybody. I'm just waiting.
0: How recent? How how long ago was that?
1: Oh, That was uh, last December. Oh, cool. Yeah. We call him El Viejo, the old man.
0: (laughs) Do you feel like you keep getting better at what you do?
1: I hope so. I hope so. I know know that my – Uh, I don't, I won't take the camera out as much as I used to unless it's really special. You know, used to, when you first start out, you take camera everywhere. You know, you've got to have a camera around your shoulder, around your neck, you know, and nothing else is just for, hey, i got my camera with me and let everybody see. But now it's got to be very special light, very special conditions. That's when I'll really break the camera out and go to work. Yeah, you fine-tune
0: where those moments are. Fine-tune. Yeah.
1: Everything is fine-tuned. It's got to be right. Like the other day, recently, a real exciting image. Uh, I love to shoot lightning in the daytime. And uh, we had a real, real strong, vicious storm come in, how the Badlands come out of the Northwest. I mean, it was, it was rank. Uh, so rank that it drew the, the flies, I call them, the, the storm chasers. You know, all, they're lined up on the highway and uh tremendous lightning just tremendous lightning that was that was going up into the sky you know just stretching like arms across the sky and i got this gorgeous shot i, I, I sat in the pickup i put the tripod in the pickup with me because the lightning was bad you know I, if, if it strikes the pickup maybe i'll make it through I, your own all four tires so i still i'll put the tripod in the pickup with me and then, and then move back and i'll put a put a shutter release on there and, and try to get it, You know, just click like this. And I mean, got this shot of this one lightning bolt. You could see it coming out of the bottom of the clouds, cloud to ground, and then just like orange reaching across the sky. It was awesome. I told Selena, I said, geez, I've never gotten a shot like that. That really excited me.
0: Absolutely. Really exciting. What else is out there you haven't done you want to do?
1: You know, and I've gotten some I've gotten some small head rises, but I want a big one coming down a river. Um, that we had a rain about five years ago, and Guthrie, four and a half inches fell all at one time. And so I knew there'd be a head rise coming to Wichita that would eventually end up on Wagner. And so I took a, a friend of mine, we got in his plane, and we flew and we, we ran into it. It took it... Uh, it's uh, 30 nautical miles to Guthrie. That's nautical miles. That's not winding river miles. And it took about 64 hours for that head rise to get to Benjamin. And so I went and, and caught the rise in the plane and then figured out approximately when it was going to get to the river bridge between Benjamin and, and Truscott. Then I took the four-wheeler and I drove to meet it. And it was so cool because the river was totally dry. And then here come this water just oh, rolling wow. down the river. And I spent all morning running down the river getting in front of this head rise. And it was only, you know, this tall. But I want
0: one it's four feet tall. Eating up the dust, yeah. I want cool. one four
1: feet tall. And the, and you get that mostly in West Texas in the where it rains in the mountains, in the Davis Mountains or in the Chinatis. And then it just comes rolling down through those, those dry creek beds. But I've had, I've had it happen in Palo Dura Canyon, had it happen in the Brazos. So I've been on about three or four of them, but they've all been small. But each one of them are very, very special.
0: That's neat. And I, and you get you, in those moments, you think they'll happen over and over again, but it's rare. Ten oh, years it's, later, it's, you find yourself going. It's a lifetime thing. Yeah, it is. Yeah. You're sticking yourself out there enough to get a bunch of those right. lifetime And you have to be out moments.
1: there. You have to be out there to, in order to, and, and to understand the land, the topography, and to know like, like that. You know, it takes 64 hours for the water to get from Guthrie to Benjamin. And you know where the tight spots are in the river, the pinch points, and that's where you're going to get your water to come together. And it's just being familiar with the land and being familiar with the you know, weather conditions and, and, uh, and putting them all together and being able to, to make the right decisions
0: couple more questions for you Wyman and I'll zip you back over to your hotel okay for from your perspective being raised as a cowboy in Texas what are your hopes for the future of the state and what are your fears in terms of you'd mentioned just the history being lost I you know one
1: of the history being lost yes to the younger people because they're just not At least they're not not as involved as I was in in history. And I I see that. I talk to my boys about it. Just recently, I told my younger son and a friend of his, I said, you guys need to go and watch these documentaries on the Civil War, uh, World War II, uh, Vietnam, Korea. You need to remember what all transpired and makes you appreciate more what you're enjoying today. I said, don't don't let history slide by. I know you guys are young, you're in your 30s, you're busy with your work. My God, you've got irons and fires everywhere. Take some time to review the history because you'll appreciate the land more and, and what you have. But one of the fears that I have, and it's happening day in and day out now, I was lucky enough to be born at a time when the ranches were all together. The big outfits we call them up there. You know, you had your Jet, you got your JA's, you got your, your Wagner, uh, the San Antonio Viejo, and even the smaller outfits, you know, I say well, four six is big ranch, you know, big, you know, two or three hundred thousand acre ranch, the pitchfork. And then you got your smaller ranches, like the one I was raised on, 27,000, 50,000 acre outfits. But these are disappearing, and they're being fragmented. And, and, and it just breaks my heart to see that, because, because with that goes the history of the old ranches. And, uh, and, and I'm seeing it every day.
0: Nothing really to stop that, I don't suppose. There's nothing
1: to stop it. It's just like a tsunami that's it's unstoppable and it's just breaking my heart to see it
0: what makes you optimistic about where we are i think
1: uh well i'll tell you you know back in the early days people didn't pay that much attention to uh to conservation in the early years and i think i like the way that the younger people are are being aware of that and being made aware of it and taking an interest in conserving the land um and making sure the quality of the wildlife is there and and that that makes me that makes me proud and uh, and hopeful yeah. for the future
0: yeah like i was telling you last night it was really inspiring to see a man's man like yourself uh willing to shed a tear over a small nest of woodpeckers or something like that
1: right and i find myself you know it, i'm glad you mentioned that jt because i look back on some of the things in my hunting years And I did just recently. I remembered a day in 1974, it was the winter, and I was out there running traps, and I was on uh, Hubert Young's place. It had 10,000 acres. At that time, I was working about 300,000 acres. And and I caught a coyote in a trap. And I shot it shot it in the chest and uh, and you know I've shot a lot of coyotes since then you know I've, I've shot a lot of animals, but th- there's there's something about the way that, that that coyote died that to this day and that's been what 44 years it still brings tears to my eyes and and I'm more inclined to
0: that those feelings today. And I'm not ashamed of it. It's not a weakness to be sensitive. I'm not ashamed of it. Thank you for sharing that. Here's to you, Wyman. Thank you very much for spending time with us. I'm honored to be here. I'm honored Uh, to meet you and be with you guys. Thanks for all the contributions to our fine state that you've made.
1: It is my honor. Thank you.
0: Adios, buddy. See you soon. Adios. Thanks again for listening to Drifting, presented by Yeti and hosted by me, J.T. Van Zandt. To listen to more episodes, visit Yeti.com or search Drifting on iTunes.